have a dope day. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Stop. Good morning. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is our co-host, uh, Claire Van Winkle. Good morning. Good morning. And our guest today is Sharon Guskin. Um, Sharon Guskin is the author of the debut novel, The Forgetting Time. In addition to writing fiction, she has worked as a writer and producer of award-winning uh Documentaries. Documentaries. <laughs> I was like, I was going to say democracy, because we just follow democracy now. <laughs> thinking of that, including uh, Stolen and On Meditation. She began exploring the ideas examined in the forgetting time when she worked as a, as a, at a refugee camp in Thailand as a young woman and later served as a hospice volunteer soon after the birth of her first child. She's been a fellow at Yado, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Blue Mountain Center, and Ragdale, and has degrees from Yale University and Columbia University School for the Arts. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two sons. Welcome, Sharon. Hi. Glad to be here. Good morning. Good morning. So why don't we start a little bit from the introduction about uh, the uh, genesis of The Forgetting Time. And And maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. Sure. Those of you out in in Radioland who aren't fortunate enough to have it in front of you. (laughs) Okay. Absolutely. Well, The Forgetting Time, um, it's basically about a single mom in Brooklyn whose four-year-old son... Um, seems to, you know, has terrible nightmares, seems sort of like haunted by something that she can't quite um, get her get her finger on. Like he's he's, uh, you know, has problems at school and and uh, and basically um, she becomes so beside herself uh, about the situation with her son that she brings in this professor who's. Uh, job is that he investigates cases of children who seem to remember previous lifetimes. And then the two of them go on this journey and this very skeptical kind of Brooklyn mom ends up kind of having her mind blown, basically. Um, And uh, the the book is based on real research done at University of Virginia. Um, and, uh, And so into children who seem to have memories of previous lifetimes. So that's kind of the arc of the book. Um, there's another family that they end up, I don't want to spoil too much, but, but, um, but it's, so it's basically about this journey of this mom and her son and this, um, kind of fringe scientist, um, and where they end up going. Okay. Great. So why don't we start with, uh, then we were saying about the, in the introduction, they say you worked at a refugee camp and this kind of how, is this how the, 
now started to uh, settle into your mind, or is how how the how the first genesis of the idea started to come to you? I think I mean the refugee camp was really more just my first introduction to people who believed um, in reincarnation. I was mm. quite young when I was like twenty years old um, in Thailand working with refugees from from Cambodia and Laos. Um, and when I left, everyone was like, see you next life. And it was kind of like, we would think it's a joke. Like, oh, see you next life. Ha ha ha. But it was like, there was a sense of like, not completely a joke, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, so that was just a little, like a twinge. Um, and then um, when I, uh, much later, um, when I had two younger children and um, I started volunteering at a at a hospice, just just sort of helping people who were facing imminent death. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, when you're in that position, I, I I think like a lot of people, perhaps I hadn't really spent much time thinking about what happens when you die. Maybe not. Maybe everybody thinks about this all the time, but for me, it was sort of like these people are like dying, and I haven't thought deeply about what do I think about that what do i think about you know what happens to you and so i became kind of really um interested <laughs> more in, interested isn't even the right word sort of like like i like sort of deeply concerned that i needed to know more about even what i thought about this um and around this time my stepmom was cleaning out her garage and she handed me this book and she said well you might be interested in this and it was a book called Old Souls by Tom Schroeder, who's a Washington Post reporter, uh, Miami Herald reporter, I believe. It. Um, and he, um, in the book, he followed this man, Dr. Ian Stevenson from University of Virginia around. And uh, what Dr. Ian Stevenson did was he investigated um, these cases of little kids uh, who from the time they could speak would say, you know, my name is not uh, Suzanne, my name is Hamam, and my husband's name is Farouk, and I have three kids, and these are their names. And and they would give these incredibly detailed sort of um, stories about who they were. And Dr. Stevenson um, and his sort of colleagues would then try to find out who this child seems to be remembering being. Um, and so eventually they would take, you know, a number of kids. A lot of these cases are in Asia and uh, sort of in India and other places. And so they would take the child maybe to a village that seemed to meet the description in some of the details. And in about, um, you know, 3,000 cases, uh, the kid would identify things and identify people. And uh, so they would they would be able to say, oh, you were, you know, you were my uncle or, you know, did, did did my brother give you the stuff he was supposed to give you when I passed away? And so these these cases blew my mind, you know, when I read about them and I could talk about them for a long time. <laughs> so they're really mind blowing. They're amazing. And the people investigating them are, you know, it's called the Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia. And they're, you know, Dr. Stevenson was the, was the head of the psychiatric program there, the, the man, Dr. Tucker, who's heading it now, uh, also is the head of the clinic. And, a, you know, he's a professor in the medical school there. So they're very serious people investigating this. And so 
Um, anyway, I, the, 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 I did, this concept, um, really sort of took hold of me. And as a writer, I, of course, I started to per- percolate in my mind thinking this is, this could be an interesting story. Mm-hmm. This could be, this is unusual. Um, and then I had these two little kids. And so I started to think for my own life, you know, I think anybody who has either kids or has been a kid or has a sibling understands that we come out differently from uh, each other, even if our parents are the same. And I started to ask myself, well, why are some people, you know, some one of them is, you know, scared of this thing and the other one isn't. And, and, you know, could that be something that happened before they were born? Could that be from a past life? So anyway, it all sort of percolated and came together in this story um, about this mom who's trying to figure out why her child is acting the way he's acting. Yeah, I know that sometimes in the last episode, we were talking a little bit about how the truth and fiction and how um, I think Claire posed the question about uh, whether or not fiction gets deeper into um, truth than sometimes just get presenting case studies. Like, for example, in this book, you you present some case studies they're interspersed in some of the chapters and but the prose actually sometimes gets you know how, how do you feel uh writing fiction uh accesses the truth of the case studies a little bit more deeply maybe or uh yeah what was the choice between like just you know just representing case studies and then deciding to tell a story about a mother and her child that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes yeah. um, I've had the question asked opposite. Like, yeah. why did you put case studies in yeah. your novel? Yeah. Um, but I actually like the way you asked it better. Um, I mean, because honestly, the reason that I made a story about it is because I'm a novelist and I'm not really a journal, you know, journalist. Yeah. And I and um, and but I did feel really strongly that these um these stories are really compelling. These not stories. These these cases are really compelling. And Dr. Tucker's had a number of books focused on the cases. Um, you know, again, if, if we have time, I'll just go and <laughs> say some of them because they're they're you know they're they're quite something. Um, like for instance, that little girl that there that one I mentioned was a little girl in in Lebanon who, from the time she could speak, she'd say, "My name is not Suzanne. My name is Hamam." And my husband's name is Farouk, and I have these three daughters. And then eventually there was another family in who was lived hours away who heard about um, this girl because they their mother, her mom, had gone to the States to have a heart operation. And her daughter, Layla, was supposed to come. Her daughter, Layla, was supposed to come with her, but she couldn't and at the last minute, and the, and, and the woman died um, over there. And so the... the um, this little girl kept picking up the phone and say, Layla, Layla, Layla. And she, then she sent you. So anyway, the, the, the mom, the, the other family decided to check up on this little girl because they were skeptical and they showed up just at the house. And the little girl identified each of the grown women by name that were her mom's daughters. Oh, wow. She asked them if they'd received the very specific pieces of jewelry they were supposed to receive. And she was like four or five at this point. When she heard that Farouk had remarried, she was distraught. And she's like, how could you remarry? You said you would only love me, you know. <laughs> and it was like the real powerful emotion. Anyway, um, so uh, you, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about the yeah. cases. And so I felt like 
I just want people to know about these cases. I think they're interesting. And I also think they make a good story. Um, and I really wanted the book to not be just like a fantasy, like a ghost story or a, like I wanted people to understand this isn't just something I made up. This is something I dramatized. I made up my own version of, but it's out there. And you can, I mean, of course, you know, people reject them and have all kinds of reasons that they decide they don't believe in them, which is fine. The beauty of it from my end is I am only a novelist. Uh, so I don't have to convince anyone of anything. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of like maybe the book will cause people to kind of open their minds, at least for the length of reading the book, and just think about, well, what do I think about these cases? What do I think about this possibility? Um, so it's just really important to me to have to have that in there to, to kind of provoke people a little bit to to so that they couldn't just completely dismiss it. Of course, people do completely dismiss it all the time. All the time. Yeah. Can I ask, um, so you used this this real doctor. You used him as a character in your book? I, well, or did you create your I own? I created my own version how, of him. How was yeah. it? Uh, do you ha- Did you have any particular strategies for um, coming up with, I, I don't know if you'd call them parallel characters or for integrating the essence of, a real person into your dramatized story. How did you, as a writer, handle that? What, how did you choose? Did you just simply change the names? I'm assuming, or, or how did you process those characters? Um, it's yeah, it's an interesting question because I definitely felt a, a certain amount of pressure. I should say, Doctor uh, Doctor Stevenson had passed away when mm-hmm. I was writing writing the book, but Doctor Tucker, who was his protege and who heads up the Division of Perceptual Studies, in, you know, um, investigating these children's cases, um, you know, was very close to him. So I spent, you know, I, I spent some time interviewing Doctor Tucker, um, and then um, you know I made up a name. Doctor Stevenson became Doctor Anderson. Maybe not the most clever, <laughs> the uh-huh. clever version uh-huh. of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think like, you know, as with a lot of writers, um, he's a bit of a composite. So mm-hmm. like his physical um, manifestation and some aspects of him came from my very first writing teacher, Peter Matheson, who had a huge impact on me. Um, and it was a very spiritual person. So I kind of brought that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no I knew that Dr. Stevenson was incredible, like a, almost, he was really obsessed with, with these cases. And really, it's been decades of his life just tirelessly, you know, into his 80s, traveling the world, documenting them. So it was kind of the energy, his energy and his meticulous scientific kind of outlook that I was trying to capture. And Dr. Tucker said at one point after he had read the book, he said something like, I think you captured the spirit of Ian, of Dr. Stevenson. And that was probably the comment about the book that I was happiest with. Can I ask you, so I, I have, uh, I teach writing at CUNY and um, students frequently ask questions about, can I write this story? Is it okay to take this approach to write uh, to writing something that might be about the real world? And I usually default to saying, well, yeah, write it, just be open to whatever feedback you get. Um, would if you had not been able to personally meet and interview Dr. Tucker, if you had had to just go off research, uh, do you think you still would have undertaken this project? Uh, just just out of curiosity, because I, I also love the idea of 
integrating research with writing and um, just for those writers out there who might have a project that is uh, even less accessible than all of these past lives. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, um, you know, I was really glad that I had the opportunity that he was very generous uh, and met with me and I got to know him a little bit Um, in some ways, largely because, you know, the research, of course, and, and I spent some time, you know, I did some transcription for him of some cases and so that was very helpful but it but and helped him as well but also um the credibility that he brought to it like Dr. Tucker and I say this I mean he's an amazing person but he would almost be boring if he weren't talking about like kids past lives he's (laughs) so conscientious this man he's very scientist, you know, he's this conscientious sort of scientist. And it was so important for me personally to meet him so that I knew in my own heart, like these people are not crackpots. Yeah. You know what I mean? Would I have embarked on the book if I hadn't had the opportunity to, to do that? You know, I, it's hard to say probably I would have, I mean, I think in the past I've been shy about really going to meet with people. And I guess I would encourage writers in general don't be shy because it's just better it whatever whatever texture and experience even just the way someone talks it's just better to do it and people generally are much um you know kinder and open more open than you think and i think um you know it's easy these days to just pull up on a on a computer and and get Mm -hmm. all this information but being in a room with someone is a different experience so Did, did this um the act of interviewing this man or the other people uh, who you may have met over the course of this project, did that help you with writing dialogue? Um, just, just, is that something that you integrate when you're talking about people's speech patterns or things like that as a writer? In this case, uh, in subtle ways. I mean, Dr. Tucker also, he lives in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. and my character does not. So it was like, okay, yeah. you know, so there's right. certain like... Cult- but on the other hand, um, just the the care mm. with which he spoke kind of imprinted itself upon my, you know, upon my consciousness and my intention. And I think more than anything, you know, when you meet with people, you're like, oh, this guy is a person. He's, he's a guy and he's doing this work. And I really, it made me more... Um, dedicated to try to do justice to what they were doing. So, a- so your character was like Dr. Tucker in a past life. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <it's> like, <laughs> or, doc, you know, or maybe Dr. Stevenson is coming back as something else. I don't know. But. I know uh, from the book that you quote the Emma Dickinson poem that might be relevant to this discussion. Uh, I'll just read the poem quickly. It's um, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children ease with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. So it was interesting to tell the truth to tell it slanted, or tell it slant. And uh, some theme that comes up about uh, getting at the truth at a slant. So uh, what does that mean to you, and how does that uh, inform kind of this, uh, this process that we're talking about, like, taking things that are out there and kind of internalizing them and giving that kind of perspective. Yeah. I think, um, 
you know, to me, it's um, the truth, you know, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. At one point, I wanted the book to be called The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually or The, the, the truth, truth Must Dazzle and everybody convinced me out of it, which yeah. is probably a good thing. <laughs> um, but I think, um, you know, I, it, it's a question of, you know, these are very deep, they're, they're profound Topics. What happens when you die? You know, does this happen when you die? And I think that we have a lot of resistance, first of all, to even thinking that we die, which is kind of silly, but it's true because it's so it, it kind of freaks us out. And then, you know, people are constantly shouting, you know, telling things about this happens or that, or that happens or whatever, or it's nothing. We know it's nothing. You know, so I think I think we have a lot of either kind of like, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, confusion and fear around these topics. And I think that that a process of kind of deeply exploring it and figuring out for oneself what one thinks or believes um, is it has to be gradual and kind of almost gentle, almost careful, you know, um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a process, basically. And for me, you know, hearing these, you know, it was a process for me, too. Frankly, when I started writing the book, I did not necessarily believe that in reincarnation. I thought, you know, as I said, I thought it was fascinating. These cases were fascinating. I thought it'd be a good story. I also wanted to get a book published. I was like, this is a good story. Maybe people would like to read this. You know, there were a lot of, you know, so I was intrigued and I was sort of interested in the topic, but I didn't have what I would say belief in it. And really, it was through this process of doing the research, thinking I was doing the research for this novel, meeting with Dr. Tucker, thinking I'm meeting with a guy to do the research for the novel. And then somewhere along the process for myself, I had to stop and say, okay, but what do you think about this? And at that point, I was like, well, I think Dr. Tucker is really compelling. And I think these cases are really extraordinary. And I can't come up with a better explanation for them. And I also, you know, and this started with it when I was researching the book and then just has blown up since then. People just tell me all of these stories. So many people have crazy stories about all sorts of things that just indicate so clearly to me that the world isn't as we perceive it to be most of the time. Um, and so I uh, I had to conclude at the end, oh, I actually believe this myself. And then, you know, that just kind of opened a door to like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And where are you going to go with that? But so in other words, I think that it's a process of exploration that everybody, you know, I, I would encourage people to do it. I mean, this feels a little presumptuous to say that, but I guess my hope with the book is just like even, you know, even for the span of the book, just to, to kind of have an open mind to think, do I think this is the case or not? I think that's useful, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, the um, the title, uh, The Forgetting Time, and what you think about the role of forgetting and remembering play. Because, uh, you know, I, can't, I can barely remember, you know, what happened to me you know, a couple months ago. Sometimes certain events, I think, leave a deep impression on you or certain uh, things leave, leave a... Uh, you know, events or occurrences leave deep, deep imprints in your mind. But then other times, you know, it's easy to forget things. And that's, of course, the part of the process. But 
these people, these case studies will remember things that happened in previous lives. So what do you think is the process of forgetting and the, and the thinking behind creating alternate child forgetting time? Well, the, um, I mean, 75% of the cases of the very young children who are documented to have memories that seem to seem to coincide with somebody who lived and died, um, 75% of them had some kind of traumatic death. And yeah. that's what they remember, you know. Um, there's also this kind of crazy detail. I say crazy, but, you know, Dr. Stevenson spent a lot of time and wrote a whole book trying to document it, that the mode of death of what he called the previous personality corresponds to birthmarks and birth defects in the person that's born. So someone might have a terrible fear of guns or loud noises, say, and and also like born with a hole in their chest and then remembering, you know, a past life that there's some evidence for that of somebody who was shot or something. Mm. That's that's just something I um, that's a sort of variation on a particular case. But so so there's a sense, a speculation, perhaps, that, you know, uh, that if you're going to remember something, you know, trauma is something that we tend to remember more deeply. And a, and a sudden traumatic death could could imprint itself so powerfully on a consciousness that it just kind of flows through. Now, these are the cases you know, as I said, most of these cases of young children, there's other cases which I, which is not what Dr. Stevenson really studies of, you know, advanced, um, you know, Buddhist practitioners who seem to have access to previous lifetimes and stuff through their spiritual progress. But that's very different from these kids who are quite haunted by memories, uh, you know, of, of something traumatic that happened to them. Um, so, and also... The forgetting time, just to go back to the title, um, you know, uh, uh, most of them tend to forget uh, these memories by the time they're five or six or so. Mm. So, you know, when you start going to kindergarten and this life just sort of really takes over. Um, and so the forgetting time is kind of a play on uh, as a title these, you know, that there is a there there is a, a time beyond which everybody forgets. And then also if it's the case that we all had past lives, then we're all, you know, I don't know about you guys, maybe you remember, but I, I'm certainly in a forgetting time, which yeah. I don't remember any of them, so that everybody's in a forgetting time in that way. Um, does that make sense? Is yeah, that yeah. That's, good. that's good. And I think throughout the book, there's all these great uh, insights into life and into into um, our, our experiences, you know, um, I think there's a couple of quotes. There's a lot of things that are, that are uh, highlighted in the Kindle edition that's interesting about uh, being in the present moment or, um, you know, there's one about, uh, you know, just generally speaking, like, uh, um, that was pretty much it, wasn't it? You think you're in control, but you're really simply staring at the moving lights. Things like these were little, little phrases like this, which include kind of a, a deep sense of wisdom, you know? So I, I, yeah, it's like you know, uh, a deep sense of play, uh, uniqueness, you know, yeah, unique insights, you know. Oh, thank you. That's, thank you. Yeah. that's very kind of you to say. So tell us a little bit more about uh, your exploration of philosophies and such, and uh, what, what 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 kind of philosophical traditions have influenced you. I'm I'm sorry. What was the beginning? What, of my ex uh, philosophy, my, exploration of philosophies and oh, such. philosophies. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, Let's see philosophies. Um, I mean, I I sort of became a, a Buddhist 
through in the course of, you know, kind of right before I finished the book, basically, I would say I, I started practicing Buddhism, which came out of, um, as I said, um, this kind of belief that that started that that I started to um, kind of realize I had about about past and future lives. Um, I think you know, in a way, I wasn't. I was more curious than sort of ascribing to any particular philosophy. I was raised kind of secular Jewish. Never really um, had a strong feeling for it personally. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I was kind of one of these agnostics, like, I think it's, it's probably all going to be fine, no idea, but I'm just going to go with that. And that was kind of my philosophy of life, was like, probably fine when you die. Um, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, <laughs> that was kind of how I thought about it, you know. And uh, and so then once I was like, well, I think you might, you know, I think that perhaps I was born before and I might be, you know, and... And if that's the case, then I'm going to be born again um, as some other being, you know. And so uh, do I like like how do I make that go well for me, basically, mm-hmm. in a way like it just kind of started to open me up into thinking I better kind of explore this some more if I believe that this is true, because otherwise you're just saying, yep, well, it's the same thing. Like, OK, well, whatever happens, I hope it's good, you know. And so um, anyway, at that th- around that time, I started to kind of around the time I was still finishing up research and had drafts of the book written, I started to. Attend meditation classes in in New York City. It's a place called Kadampa Meditation Center, and 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 they're, it's a Buddhist approach. Um, and it just started to make um, more and more sense to me. So while the book is very much like not a Buddhist book, because I wasn't a Buddhist when I wrote it, most of it, um, it definitely kind of spurred me along this kind of spiritual journey of my own. Um, and now. And now that makes, you know, it, it makes a ton of sense to me. Um, so and actually, um, so I'm I'm a therapist. Also, mm-hmm. I, I do writing therapy at uh, Columbia University Medical Center at the New York uh-huh. State Psychiatric Institute. And um, even if if uh, one isn't uh, doesn't ascribe to Buddhist traditions or if one isn't interested in the um, bigger picture of previous lives and future lives, uh, even within the span of our own lives, we run in cycles of yeah. forgetting times. Mm-hmm. And it we kind of have multiple lives within each lifespan. And um, so many of my patients struggle with the idea of dealing with and processing memories that come up through the course of treatment. And the whole idea of, okay, now that I've accessed this memory that I've been suppressing or this memory that I hadn't quite clicked into the greater span of this cycle I was going through in my life. What do I do with that now? How do I process it and let it go? What is it to, for? do we process a trauma or do we forget it? Like, what is the difference between losing something and getting past something? Yeah. So I think that the whole idea of, of past lives is a wonderful thing to think about, whether you're doing so spiritually or even metaphorically within the span of our own lives. I think that's a very interesting way of looking at how all of these stories that we are kind of influence one another. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, I think that's a very deep way of thinking about it. And I absolutely agree. I mean, we have many lives. We have many selves that we can choose to, to be or not to, 
to be talk, sorry. <laughs> Let's get some literary references here. Yeah. Didn't mean didn't mean that Shakespeare. I apologize. Um, hey, maybe, but who knows? Maybe maybe that's you. No, no I really don't think so. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think uh, I mean, and from just the the past life perspective, they found you know there are. I mean, Dr. Dr. Stevenson and Dr. Tucker were both psychiatrists, and there are mm-hmm. people who do you know, therapy with people. Also, you know, the the psychiatrists at University of Virginia don't deal with like regression therapy, but mm-hmm. there are people who have, you know, like they go through a therapeutic process to maybe remember a past life. And, it, and the thought is it doesn't even matter if it was. Part of it is to just accept that that's done with. It's over. Mm-hmm. That happened in the past. So a lot of these kids, when they sort of discover, you know, oh, this was the previous self and this, person died there's a sense of peace almost um because you kind of realize oh but i'm in this life now that was before mm-hmm. and i think the same thing you can be said for within our own life like our own memories i mean you never want to i mean repressing never helps right, right? it's always just going to cause all sorts of other problems whether physical or it's going to manifest in some way but but if we can you know if we can realize um oh this this happened and that's not who I am. That's not who I have to be right this minute. And I can create a relationship. I can I can create a self this minute that has a relationship to that. So maybe that empowers thinking, me. So maybe I mean? thinking about it less as um, observing the truth and more of like bearing witness yeah. to what happened. Yeah. Right. And it, and the. Exactly, but uh, bearing witness in a way that that can empower you. That too. honors that, that can, honors the existence of of possibility and past without eclipsing the idea of the future. Or exactly, or even you know, I mean, I think this is very much um, in line with you know um, the Buddhist approach. But it's not just Buddhist; it could be therapeutic as well. That we we have the freedom to create ourselves. You know, there is the, that often the selves that we are, the, the selves that we seem to be is just some kind of like, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of feelings and emotions that we grasp onto and decide that this is me. You know, I mean, I had this myself. I don't want to go into this, but I had two books that didn't get published before this one. And I was really identified with, I need to prove to people I am, a good writer. And I had a very like perfectionistic, you know, not good enough, going to prove to others kind of writer self that I was being when I wrote those books. And it's not really a surprise to me they didn't get published. And then with this one, it was like a a totally different, I I had a totally different approach, totally different person that that I was wanting to write this book. Like these stories are amazing. I'm interested in it. I'm going to write the book. And I think, I mean, that's just a very minor story, but like with any situation, with any trauma to just say like, oh, do I, how do I want to identify myself in this situation? I don't have to be necessarily the overwhelmed person by this event. I could be the person who's, who's going to um, empower oneself or who's going to kind of um, use this to to help others, you know. To grow from it rather grow than growing it. out of it. Right. Yeah. That there's flexibility there. We don't have to like just just have an automatic response. And I think that's very true in, in therapy as well, right? Can, can I ask you, so building on the same kind of theme about how we are more than one person and um, the way that we identify with ourselves and with our possible selves, how 
how do you identify with the characters that you create? Because as writers, all of our characters um, come from us. I mean, they come from a lot of things, the people around us, the people we research, the ideas we have, the philosophies we study. But at the end of the day, you're the one putting all of those words on the page. And these characters are literally speaking through you. So as a, how do you, and especially with a book like this that involved so much of a personal journey, um, can you talk just a little bit about that process of uh, conjuring, I suppose? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, you said they, they come from us and then through us. I mean, I would say they come through us, but not necessarily from us. Right. Because yeah. the whole book is ultimately just, you know, at a certain point you start to realize, oh, like my editor had a huge part in this mm -hmm. book. Everything I've read has influenced this book. Dr. Tucker, Dr. Stevenson, you know, so it's, and all the people that I've met that kind of became manifest in the different characters. So it's like, like, it's interesting my, that my name is on it, you know, and you're interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> but like, really, I just kind of like, it just, I'm the one who kind of like a medium. put it, yeah, yeah sort of just put it together <laughs> yeah. in this way. But, and, you know, with characters, it's interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, originally I identified a lot more with the sing with I'm not a single mom. I'm I'm a, a mom in Brooklyn. So I have a mom in Brooklyn and I was like, oh, OK, that one's the one like me. Right. Um, it's interesting. That was the character, Janie, that I had the most trouble with. I kept having to rewrite her because she wasn't likable, uh. <laughs> which um, I think was just she was too much in her head. Or I mean, I think she I was just having some problems with her. I was all kind of wrapped up. And this one is like me. But how is she? You know, whereas some of the other characters, Dr. Stevens, Dr. Anderson and and Denise, another character kind of really came through me in a and and seemed to have their own voices mm -hmm. and seemed to have their own selves, so to speak. And we're, I think, maybe even more successful as characters. I certainly think the one that the character I feel the best about just kind of showed up and had a very strong point of view. And I was like, okay, we're, we're going to go with that. Um, as opposed to me trying to kind of like get in there, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just like, as with so, so many things, like kind of getting out of the way this sort of conscious mind that thinks it has to figure it all out, getting out of the way, you can let um, characters sort of, and I don't know where they come from, but, mm -hmm. but they will come if you get out of the way. The other character that was, you know, I think, I think she came out okay in the end, mostly because I had to step away from her. And I was like, well, okay, I'm really disorganized. So she's going to be really organized. <laughs> and I was like, she's, she has a completely different career than I do. So the more I made myself different from her, the more she started to come into focus. Mm -hmm. So, um, so one thing also I wanted to bring up about observation and consciousness that in the review in the book, book discussion questions, this comes up, uh, that connects the events, the, the novel with Max Planck and the quantum physics that events don't occur unless they are observed and therefore the consciousness was fundamental and matter itself was derived from it, perhaps. And uh, did that therefore make this world like a dream with each life, like each dream flowing from one after the other? And that it is possible that some of us, like the children, were awakened too abruptly from these dreams and attached to and ache to return to them. So it's interesting when we talk about, like, even with their own lives, the different days are being dreams or, you know, breaking it down to each moments in our life being like a dream and and how that influenced you uh, uh you know how would you think about that yeah uh i wish that i could talk about the quantum yeah. <laughs> physicist in a, in a 
in a really clear way. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that I, I, I don't feel that I have a deep, deep understanding of quantum physics, but right. I have enough of an understanding, um, I think, to, to see that um, it's kind of like what they've shown um, through evidence, you know, through their, res- through their experiments is that you know the 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 research that that you know a particle in one place will have an impact of another completely separate particle seemingly separate particle somewhere else you know or that things react differently whether they're observed or not and i think all of this um really just indicates uh, powerfully that the the way that we perceive reality is just not how reality actually exists you know and this strong statement, consciousness is fundamental, matter is derived from consciousness, uh, it's so mind-blowing. It's so not how we live. Um, I mean, I mean, the Buddha kind of said a similar thing, basically, yeah. <laughs> 2,500 years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like too mind-blowing that it's hard for us to kind of think about it. Like, how can this life be like a dream? Um and I guess I'll, I'll just say, and this is very kind of mundane, perhaps, but just, you know, anecdotally hearing people's stories. If you're in any group of people, someone, ha- you know, people have stories, people have things that occurred to them, people have, you know, inexplicable things and events and mystic moments. And there's all this information that we are getting um, like that's getting through to us a little bit that 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 things are more dreamlike than we're giving things credit for being, you know, and I think that and the more you go along, you know, studying this stuff or, or you know, uh, med- meditation and all of that stuff, all of, you know, these approaches, the more it, this seems um, not just, you know, plausible, but kind of the only thing that makes any sense ultimately. But I think, you know, I I think. Again, I'm a novelist, so I don't have to convince any of you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to. But I will say that it's a powerful, you know, there, there's there's some powerful, you know, ideas out there that have to do with with the, the, the nature of reality that we experience moment by moment. And um, it's it's good for us to kind of try to try to explore it personally. Yeah. I think there is sort of uh, a a general trend that we as writers need to combat where people tend to these days get frustrated when there aren't easy answers to things. And these ideas that the more we contemplate them, the more questions they raise rather than the more answers they yield. Yeah. I think these are the important questions and we need to make our heads hurt a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> a, a little yeah. bit more often, and and this is something that I see with a lot of my students because I I think that maybe it's part of our teaching toward testing, maybe it's part of our kind of ends focused um, educational system right now. But I think that a lot of people are getting really complacent in looking at discussions as expedient rather than exploratory. Yeah. And I think that questions like this that that you're raising and that this this type of research and this type of open mindedness raise um, 
it should get people stirred up and it should make us, we, we should be a little bit more uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is very destabilizing, but it's also like, that we're talking about the truth of and, our lives. Right, exactly. Yeah. That, that's why I'm saying that's why I'm saying that um that that little bit of discomfort, um it, like that's how we know we're alive, right? When we're struggling, yeah. when we're struggling with the reality. And then at the at the end of the day, there's this beautiful kind of dichotomy between, oh, we're so lost, we're so lost, but wait, here we are, and life is happening now. And it's like we can see that there's this big there's all of these other things that we can't possibly understand, but then no matter what, we are in the moment, in this present moment, and we can also honor that and be there. But we have, humans have this capability to kind of go back and forth between those different perspectives. And it's something that isn't really appreciated as much in the day-to-day of of our very logical, yeah. horribly so, illogical so, world. Right, exactly. <laughs> logical, illogical. And, you know, people, you know, it's just about asking questions and, 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 and we don't have to be freaked out to ask ourselves these questions. We can ask them gently, mm-hmm. you know, within a moment by moment experience of trying, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, that's all, you know, I'm trying to do is, is ask questions with the book. And I also think like, like there's, um, um, somebody once asked me actually in a, in a radio show, so how does it work? Like, huh, and I was like, what do you mean? How does what work? <laughs> like reincarnation, like, like, how are you? And I was like, I'm a novelist. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where do I get my ticket? Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so, so you're not going to break down the whole meaning of life for us um, bit by bit right now. Yeah. That's not how we're going to finish I'm gonna this. Stick with, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there are various, they're much wiser people than I who can, who tried who could do that, but not and, me. And we can see even on a functional level, the quantum and uh, theory being played out and, with three people experience the same event, you know, we're in the same space. We're, we're each experiencing in a very different way, about the different ways and about different perspectives. We don't think that we think that there are factually that things happen in certain ways or from our perspective. You know, this definitely happened. This definitely how this definitely how it happened. But we all experience experience and our experience of it is very different. And then uh, you know, there was another quote, uh, another from the, from the questions about ownership, like about. Um, you know, we talk about children and whether or not these are our children or whether or not whether or not they're um uh what was the question? Let me see. Um there was an interesting way it was phrased here, uh, about whether or not whether or not they're just somewhere where in regards to motherhood and children, uh your experience of that and how your experience informed the novel. Um, in terms of my own personal yeah, experience. Motherhood, yeah. Yeah, I mean I think um you know, as I mentioned, like my experience of having two different kids certainly made me think. I mean, when you, you know, you just think about like, where do they come from? You know, they're just there, but they have these their own kind of personalities and predilections. And so I think that definitely had an impact on me. But also um, and also just personally, motherhood helped me get out of my own way in terms of just being caught up in my head and my, you know, kind of like self-absorption. Um, which is just always good for anything to get out of that. Um, but I, I also feel like, you know, there's a there's a a Buddhist view um, that was in my head as I was sort of because I remembered it before I was a Buddhist when I took a class way back when um, that that uh, that we've all been born and reborn so many times, like from you know uh, countless previous lives, that every single person alive was once our mother and i thought i thought that's such a powerful thought 
that like you guys were my mother. I was your mother. Like we've all been kind of playing these roles to each other. And I think for myself to think of, because it's a very, you know, you, you feel it's a super powerful experience, you know, to have like, oh, these kids are, I'm responsible for them. But then to try to take that same level of kind of love and compassion and responsibility and to and to just expand it out, which is challenging for us, for me. But I also feel like um, if you really hold that thought, just the possibility of that in your head, that like everybody was related to us intimately, then like how can we justify the way that as a society we treat each other? Like it's, it's completely illogical you know it makes no sense we're, we're hurting our children we're hurting our mothers you know and so i think just you know even if you think if if, if you're listening you know if you think reincarnation is bunk and many many people don't believe and i was totally fine you can still see this entire like book or process as a metaphor for the fact that we're we're connected to each other we're like all we're we're all connected and we're all, all in this together, yeah. <laughs> you know. And uh, and I think that like focusing on that as opposed to mm. focusing on the ways that we disagree with each other will lead us in like uh, such a, a more positive, powerful direction. And we seem to be doing the opposite so much of the time. Yeah, I found a quote here. Uh, Jenny recalls "Sweet Honey" um, in the rock song. Your ch- your children are not your children. They're though they are with you. They belong not to you. So it's interesting how we think about, uh, you know, without we're the dreamer or without we're in the dream, you know, kind of that action or the possession or the grasping at specifics of like that ownership and uh, possession and stuff like that. So it's interesting to think about and contemplate how the dream is happening, unfolding, experience unfolding and that we're not the doer. You know, exactly. And it's actually a Khalil Gibran quote, which I, I regret that I attributed it to sweet honey in the world um for various reasons but um that's where it came from originally but um but yeah exactly it's uh it's where we get so um you know we it's it's like we're really grasping at all these you know my kids but even even at the most conventional level i mean i got a 16 year old and he's gonna go off to college soon and he's having his own life you know even at at the most basic level that that everyone understands is we grow up and we don't own each other. And you know? and as a writer, the same can be said too about about the work that we produce. Like we can exactly. put all of our efforts to force our reader to have this experience or we can recognize that as soon as we put the word on the page and put it out into the world, it's going to have a different life for everybody. That the the things that we and this is part of why literature is dynamic and why literature literature will never die because (laughs) every time we read a story, it tells itself again and in a different way. And as writers, I think it's really important that we also let our little darlings go and and let, let our readers do with it, have their own experiences with them. And it can, can be easy to forget that um, once they're off our screen and on somebody in somebody else's lap or on somebody else's screen, that all of those things we write, um, are open to interpretation and to uh, having a different meaning for every single person who reads them. And it's part of how it works. Absolutely. We have no control of it anyway. Right. But, it's, but the idea that there's not like, I mean, this is kind of a Buddhist idea. There's not like a, a book. There's right. just 
you know what there's I mean? An exper- there's there's the, all these p- potential experiences together yeah. and everybody experiences it. Each person experiences it completely differently. And it's so, you know, that's that's and that's one, the success of literature, not the failing of literature. A lot of people who first start writing think that the the goal of the writer is to force something to happen, like to control the outcome when really it's to create the potentiality of an infinite number of experiences. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that's kind of everything. Like we can't control anything because we just create potentialities. And I mean, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting because now with the, so, you know, the way that Goodreads and Amazon and everything, you see people's responses. Mm-hmm. And so at first you're like everyone who doesn't give you like a five star yeah. or four star. You're like, <gasps> like, I remember like somebody else, somebody else better write something good because that person didn't like it. And then after yeah. a while, I, you know, it's interesting. So somebody, you know, I get people who like will write, you know, write me letters about how it consoled them for some huge loss or this was like a big, huge, you know, like they, they so enjoyed it and it caused them to rethink the views of reality or whatever. And then people who were like, yeah, it was a, it was a good fast read. It. I read it an hour and a half on the beach, but was, I can't really remember it, but it was fun. Yeah. And then Forgetting people, time. <laughs> exactly. People have said that. And then other people who were like, somebody wrote just as an Amazon review. No, 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 no. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> that's really interesting. And, and in some ways I didn't mind it because I obviously had like hit a nerve with that person. But but, you know, and then other people like, you know, so it, it's kind of it, it it humbles you, but in a good way, because it shows you like, you know, again, it's my name is on this thing, but it's just this sort of this, this, you know, book that arose from so many different, you know, causes and so many different influences. And it's out there having different, you know, and people are having different reactions to it or no reactions to it. Um, so. Yeah. And as you start to close up, I'll just mention uh, The Forgetting Time is Book Browse 12 Best Books for Book Clubs in 2017, Amazon's UK Rising Star in 2016, Booklist Top 10 Debut Novels in 2016, the audiobook, and Indie Next Pick. So I definitely recommend people check it out and, and, and keep their mind open to different um, you know, thoughts and different uh, philosophies and such. So... Um, also, uh, this, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, Truth to Power Show. Um, if you'd like to, uh, Truth to Power Show is, uh, can be found, the archives can be found at Automatic and iTunes. And uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you who so like to support our mission. And uh, to, so we can continue to bring us quality community radio. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, also, just one more quick announcement. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn presents Love Honey, Arlene's Grocery, uh, 927, 2018. So um, if you'd like to join, uh, you can go to ticketfly.com and uh, join that event. Um also, Sharon, you wanted to uh, mention something about uh, uh, political. You want to? Oh do, yeah, do um, just that uh, I've been volunteering a little bit with an organization called Changing the Conversation Together. It's a grassroots organization that does deep canvassing, having long, respectful conversations with swing voters right now in Staten Island and elsewhere. Um, I'm actually co-hosting an event. If you're interested 
and on thir- this Thursday uh, to, to sort of show people a little more about it at my house in Park Slope. If you're interested, you can email me at Sharon at SharonGuskin.com. That's Thursday, September 27th. And if this sounds interesting to you, um, it's called Changing the Conversation Together. It's, it's a New York-based grassroots organization that's trying to have a really empathic, um, positive way to talk to voters and and perhaps uh, persuade them uh, that some checks, checks and balances might be useful in this country. And, <laughs> and just one last thing, if, if uh, you haven't quite gotten enough of uh, Vijay and, and Claire for one week, you can also huh. join us on Thursday at 6.30 at the Forest Hills Public Library where um, we will be kicking off the uh, Queens Public Library reading series at, oh, at right, Forest right. Hills. Yeah. And Open I'll be reading from some fiction for the first time ever. And uh, Vijay's going to do some poems after that. And then there will be lots of open micers, open miking and stuff. So you should join us at the Forest Hills Library on Thursday at 630. Yeah, it's every last Thursday of the month. So if you can't make it this time, definitely stop by. And, but you should uh, make it this time. Mic. Make it this time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll close out with um, the Where's My Mind Pixies, continuing that. The Pixies, Where's My Mind, continuing that song. Since I think it seems a very uh, appropriate uh, kind of. Uh, lyrics and such so we'll close out with that thank you so much for listening thank you so much for having me happy monday happy monday stop